Hey, it's Karen Hunter from the Karen Hunter Show on Sirius XM Urban View. Here's a highlight from today's show. He's the author of A Great Moral and Social Force, A History of Black Banks. You know I'm here for that. Let me welcome Mr. Timothy Todd to the Karen Hunter Show. Hi. Hello. How are you doing today? Good. Sounds like you're fired up. Well, this is this is every day, and I don't know how you could not be fired up. And I know for some people, it doesn't matter one way or the other what happens in 2022 or 2024 because your life is going to be okay no matter what, especially if you're a white man in this country. You're good. You're going to be all right. For the rest of us, though, it could it could mean, you know, death in some instances as we're watching this pandemic play out disproportionately. It, it could also mean, you know, destruction of your wealth. If, if the wrong people are in power. So, yeah, I, I take this very seriously sitting here every day, and I'm not ever going to allow somebody to come in with a talk radio talking point when there's too much work to be done, and we have people right now obfuscating and standing in the way of justice and voting against voting rights or even having a vote on voting rights. How How is that okay? How are we okay with that? But that's not what you're here for. But it's, it's adjacent because I think this banking history – and, you know, I've read Mercer Barandarin's uh, Color of Money book. Um, and so I, I want to know, first of all, what inspired you to write this book? So what uh, inspired me to write this book is I, I work at the Federal Reserve. I've been with the Fed since 2002. And I do uh, historical research. So my job is mostly, you know, looking at things related to the Fed and how they communicate about monetary policy and, and banking regulation. And over the course of my career, I would read these little snippets about black banks that were created in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And you'd see them mentioned here or there, but you can never get like the full story about what happened to these banks. Uh, and, and they were interesting stories. And so I was just like, I, I want to know more. And so I went online and started looking, thinking somebody has surely written a book about this. And nobody, nobody really had, nobody had really put something together. So uh, we published a book actually called Let Us Put Our Money Together about the first uh, black banks. We published that book in, in 2019. And right away, people said, hey, we, we want to know more about, about these people. We want to know more about these communities. We want to know more about these strong, uh, these strong banks and the work they did. So we've, uh, so we've followed up now. And we're looking at uh, strong bankers, strong banks, strong communities in the late uh, 19th century and across the 20th century. Uh, one of my heroes is Mary Lena Walker. Um, when I discovered her and what she was able to do, I was floored and she survived the great depression. Her bank was, her bank survived the great yeah. depression. Yeah. Uh, it's, come on. Oh no, I was going to say, you know, it's, it's interesting that across the board uh, versus their competitors at that time, you know, when you had a kind of wide open banking environment and you didn't have the safety nets and things in place uh, that you have today, Black banks historically were very well run. They were innovative. They were strong community leaders. They were, uh, in many cases, better than than many of their competitors within their communities, as far as uh, from just a banking soundness perspective. So, um, tell us some other success stories. You know, and and before you got here, the first hour we were talking about the Freedmen's Bank, Freedmen's mm-hmm. Bureau, and what, uh, how horribly they managed the the funds of hardworking folk who were formerly enslaved who some had just fought in a war, put a dollar a week, a dollar every time they got paid in, they had amassed millions of dollars in this bank only to have somebody mismanage it. And, you know, so there's a narrative in this country and there's a wealth gap in this country that can be directly tied to those early banking situations and also the disenfranchisement of people and leaving them out of the new deal 
until the 70s right. and things like that. Right. Talk about that a little bit, Timothy. So, yeah, so the Freedmen's Bank, you know, it's funny because some people uh, still today when I'm at events and talk about it and say, well, that was America's first black bank. And it, no, that's not what it was. This was a, a government created institution. I think maybe there were a couple of guys who their heart was in the right place, but they didn't really uh, know quite what they were doing. And it got created uh, by Congress very quickly. And it was never really uh, a bank in the sense that it, that many of us think of a bank. So it was run by and controlled by wealthy Wall Street interests who used it for their own purposes uh, to offset some of the bad deals and things that were going on with their financial institutions. And importantly, as you as you think of a bank, the thing it wasn't doing at all is it wasn't lending back to the community. And that's something that uh, you talked about Maggie Walker. I mean, that's, you know, her, her saying was, let us put our money together. We borrowed the title of our first book from her. And what that is, is, hey, the community's got uh, some excess funds. We have financial resources. If we put our money together, we can go out and we can lend that money and we can it can be used to start businesses and help people get homes and help people get education. Freedman's Bank wasn't doing any of that stuff and uh, was poorly regulated, poorly set up. And they brought in Frederick Douglass at you know, the 11th hour when the thing was was already, you know, heading into the ground. And, you know, he didn't know that and they could lied to him and and it went under. It was it was terrible. Uh, the most anybody got out of it was 60 cents on the dollar, and you had to uh, maintain a mailing address. This went on for a number of years, and a lot of people, it just wasn't worth the, it wasn't worth the effort. They didn't even have the means. You know, you're talking some accounts that you know just have a few dollars in them at that time. So again, it was a, a perspective. Again, bondage yeah. for 400, 300 plus years. You're enslaved. You're now free. You're told. All the money that you make, put it here. We got you. We're going to save right. it for you, for your children's right. children. You can build a legacy. And people did it to the tune right. of mil- millions of dollars. You're talking about four million people released from bondage right. were able to amass millions of dollars in a short period of time only to have it completely wiped out by right. And they used, yeah, and they, and they, you know, it wasn't a part of the Freedmen's Bureau but they allowed them to sort of get intermingled in people's minds. So the Freedmen's Bureau is doing things like, you know, bringing people food and, and reuniting families and doing all that good work. And then you got the bank there that's sort of living off that reputation. And they've, you know, uh, you can look at some of their brochures and they've got, you know, Abe Lincoln on there and, and, and showing all this thing that you can trust it. And it was not, uh, it, it was not trustworthy at all. At all. It was terrible. As, as a person that worked for the feds, uh, the federal reserve, I'm sorry which is not a government run agency, right? It's right, talk, right. Talk a little bit about the structure of the Federal Reserve because I think a lot of people are, you know, it's on our money, you know. Right. It's, it's like what's the relationship? Yeah, so without without getting into a long uh, story of central banking history in the United States, which would, would probably put most of your audience to sleep. Uh, the idea of the Fed is that you've got a blending of the public sector and the private sector and the Fed's governance. So you've got a board of governors in Washington, D.C. that's a government agency that's got broad oversight. And then you've got 12 independent uh, regional Federal Reserve banks that are under the direction of local boards of directors. So even though the board of governors has oversight, uh, you can think about those reserve banks as sort of the operating arms of the Federal Reserve. So the idea is you sort of want a, a balance of power between the public sector and the private sector in the Fed's governance. I, wor- I work at Kansas City Fed, so I work at a regional Federal Reserve bank. 
And do you think that has, that works? Because, you know, as we think about money and wealth in this country, and I need us to think about wealth and wealth building, um, it's interesting to me that the feds can, you know, raise interest rates, lower interest rates, you know, shift the economy as, as needed. And, it, you know, there's no real governmental oversight per se, although, you know, the Federal Reserve chairman can be appointed, I guess, by the president, but. Right. Well, in the Fed, you know, the Fed was created by Congress. It's accountable to Congress. Congress has, over the years, come in, uh, did a lot of things in the 1930s to say, change the Fed's structure, has done things more recently, uh, not necessarily the things that grab headlines, but changes uh, within the Fed. And so it's, you know, it's not accurate to sort of think of the Fed, you know, we're out here just sort of doing uh, whatever we want, right? You know, Congress creates uh, banking laws and, you know, we, we are a regulator and we go out and we you know, implement those and things like that. So, um, you know, the Fed was a very innovative structure when it was created. Prior to that, you had, in other developed countries, you had, you know, total uh, uh, private sector control of your financial system. And people didn't like that uh, for obvious reasons. And then when uh, Alexander Hamilton came along, and, and if you go back into early U.S. history, he really didn't like the idea of politicians having too much control. Uh, over your central bank because you don't want sort of political gamesmanship to become uh, intertwined with your money. He was very worried about that. Mm. Uh, Timothy Todd is here. The book is called A Great Moral and Social Force, A History of Black Banks. Why that title? So that title actually actually comes from a newspaper article in the early 1900s, and it was about a uh, black bank that was created in Birmingham, Alabama. And uh, that bank, that banker talked about some of the reasons that he created it. And one of them was uh, he learned about a couple small uh, African-American children in his community whose parents died and there was no one in their family who could post bond to help these kids out to have access to their parents' estate. And so that money was lost. And the journalist writing about that event said that it proved that a banking institution is sometimes a great moral and social force. And so that's that's where we got the title from that. And, and it reflects the banks we talk about, too. You know, when we when we look at uh, you look at Memphis at the beginning of the civil rights era, I mean, banks are really at the forefront there. And, and that's something you see time and again through history and, and something that uh, we talk quite a bit about in this book. Uh, Hollywood immortalized uh, Joe Morris and Bernard Garrett in uh, a film in 2020 called The Bankers, starring Samuel L. Jackson and Anthony Mackie. Uh, and for many of us, it's the first time we like knew about them, you know. Right. So why? So first, tell us the the biggest revelation you had in doing research for this book. Um, something that you were like, "Wow, why didn't we know this?" You know, pretty much all of it, right? Because these are all stories about individuals who went out and created banks. And if you look at uh, you look at Richmond, Virginia, uh, was really the cradle of uh, black banking. You had like five banks there uh, in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And, you know, to really think about that, first of all, every individual involved in this had a phenomenal story, right? Some of them were born enslaved and had to really uh, bootstrap their way up to, to, to make a life. And then they're taking on uh, just incredible risk in doing this too, right? So even if you go forward, you look at uh, Jesse Bengay as a banker, in Chicago, uh, around 1920, his home gets firebombed at least five different times. Uh, so it's just the bravery of these individuals and the community uh, dedication and focus. I, I think one of the things that strikes people, or at least I hope it stays with people who read this, is none of these bankers that, that we're talking about in this book, and we're looking you know, basically over a century of American history, 
none of them were sitting there thinking, hey, here, here's a way I can make some money. Time and time again, each one of them comes to it and says, hey, here's a way I can help my community. Here's something I can do to, to help people get a leg up. Here's something I can do to uplift, create economic opportunity. Uh, that's their motivation time and again. And, and some of them ended up costing them uh, their, their own personal fortunes and, and putting their safety at risk. Tell us the story of, of Jesse Bengay. Yeah. So, yeah, it's spelled B-I-N-G-A. Uh, he created a bank on the south side of uh, Chicago called Binga Bank. Uh, or Bengay Bank, I guess. It's, it's, it always tricks me up on the pronunciation. Uh, he was a self-made man who, who came up through real estate. His parents had, had been in some rental property when he was young, came to Chicago around the time of the, uh, the World's Fair in uh, 1893, and uh, really sort of worked his way up. And eventually he worked on the, he was working on the railroad for a while, did some different things, started getting into real estate and going and improving his own properties. He was very handy, so he didn't have to pay someone to do the work. And then from that, he leveraged that and, and started doing more real estate. And then uh, he had some wealth. And so if you're renting real estate south side of Chicago at that time, you sort of evolve almost into a banker because you are the wealthiest person that any of your tenants probably know. So they're going to come to you and say, hey, can I, you know, I need to borrow some money or I need to do this. And so he moves into banking and really becomes involved in a lot of things with uh, the growth of the south side of Chicago and going and, and helping families uh, as they tried to move in and some of the challenges that they faced it, some of the racial opposition that they faced it, faced as you saw the, the south side of Chicago expand into some previously white communities. Um, one of the one of the interesting one of the many interesting individuals uh, in this book. And what happened? to this. Um, we're talking with Timothy Todd, a great moral and social force, a history of black banks, Jesse Binga, Mary Lena Walker, Joe Morris and Bernard Garrett all ended up failing. Why? Right. Why? So, uh, and you know, it's probably not going to uh, surprise you or many of your listeners. And, and I'm certainly not the first person to say it or, or to recognize it, that the black community suffers disproportionately hard in times of financial crisis in America. And banks uh, are, can uplift a community, they're a catalyst for community improvement, but they are also in some ways a reflection on their community and, and, and their health often relates to the health of their community. And so when that community suffers, those banks suffer. And so, you know, if you look and you look at the bank, you look at uh, uh, Jesse Bengay in, in Chicago and, and Anthony Overton, some of the others who are in banking in Chicago in that time, you see the Great Depression coming on. And those are the first banks, uh, the first community that suffers and those banks suffer. And so in the United States, uh, you go from a period, you know, you, you've had this sort of run up from the late 1800s, you see increasing number of banks, you get to the Great Depression, that number uh, falls pretty dramatically. And then you basically don't see a new bank formed. There's some here and there, you have the banks in Memphis, hugely involved in, in civil rights issues, a few other places, a bank uh, where I am here in Kansas City, you really don't see this really sort of take off again until you get to the civil rights era. And, and so then you see that number rise. Now, unfortunately, what we've seen over the last 20 years is you've seen their numbers dwindle pretty dramatically. Mm -hmm. And that's obviously very concerning for things like the wealth gap, all the things you talked yeah. about earlier, uh, access to credit, you know, how do you borrow money? And then overlay, you know, take a, take a map of, of any community and plot on it where your payday lenders locate and where your title loans locate. And, you know, you, you don't have to like run through all the data that I have in the past, just drive around your town and, and you can see that. 
So moving forward, um, and I know it's not in your book, but I've been talking on these airwaves about cryptocurrency and, you know, the blockchain. And black folk are actually over-indexing in those spaces. And I believe it's because of the distrust of, you know, modern banking and because mm-hmm. of all of the things that you've discovered historically uh, that somehow crypto is looked at as a safe place for us. Um, what are your thoughts of that on that? And is there a possibility one United bank is one of our, one of our sponsors, it's a, one of the largest black owned banks in the country, but right. it doesn't, I think it doesn't quite have a billion dollars on its books. Whereas the largest uh, Asian bank has $30 billion, you know? Right. Uh, yeah. Give us some solutions. You know, if, it, if there's someone listening right now that might want to start a bank in this day and age, is that even possible? It's possible. It's difficult to do. I think if you have the wherewithal to uh, engage in banking, you know, I'm I'm not offering official Federal Reserve advice, but I think you know there are other ways to get involved in banking through acquiring a bank or beginning to take an ownership structure in an established institution. Uh, some of the things we talk about in the book, you know, and, and you know, I don't pretend to have all the answers, and my coworkers don't pretend to have all the answers, and you know, we're trying to push the dialogue and, and recognize that the answers are going to have to come from a lot of different a lot of different places. And so the things I think about is, you know, the the banking sector, and I'm including the Fed within this uh, when I talk about the banking sector, needs to bring more minorities into the banking business. We need to figure out across the board how to bring more minorities, and so we can make minorities comfortable and build some of the issues of trust uh, that you talked about earlier and sort of how do we do that? And I think the banking system also needs to help people understand, you know, the banks that we write about in this book and and, and community banks across the United States, you know, these aren't the big uh, risk-taking institutions that, that, you know, sort of grab all the headlines, right? They are at a very basic level helping their community. And, and I think it's important for people to recognize what that means. And when you put money with a bank, really think about uh, why you're doing that, where that money goes, who that money is creating an opportunity mm-hmm. for. Um, you know, there's a lot of different uh, uh, solutions being proposed right now. You know, there's the the Greenwood Initiative, the online bank, and there's some other ones that have gained some traction. Um, you know, they aren't in a position to be able to lend, at least not yet. And, and while I think there is are some benefits, you know, for the individual to have a bank account just to save money in, you know, when I really think about banking, I think about that lending function mm-hmm. and growing the community. You know, I, I, I don't think about it a lot of sort of where's the individual, you know, hey, if we can keep people out of having to pay money to cash a check, that's great for them. Uh, but I'm sort of thinking that next step. We need how, do, how do we right. how do we raise how do, how do you stuff? lend for me to be able to buy commercial real estate? How do you lend for right. me to be able to open a business in the community? How do you lend for me to be able to buy my home? You know, right. Uh, right. all of those things that that builds community and that also uh, is a relationship that we need to have fostered. Right. I think that's uh, absolutely on point. Uh, what else are you working on, Timothy Todd? Well, I think I should probably note that this book is actually available for free. Oh, uh, you should have people. led so with should, that. I should have led free. with that. Come on, uh, where do we yeah, get it? <laughs> you go to uh, kansascityfed.org, which is uh, my bank's website. And you can go on there right now and you can download a PDF. Come and on, if you don't PDF. Want to, I was wondering because I'm like, it's not on Amazon. No, it's not. It. That's, that's a whole other story. Um, good. Good but if that. you can go out there and you can get the PDF and you can read it tonight. Uh, or you can go in there and you can fill out a little thing and we'll, we'll send you a, we'll send you an honest hard, hard copy of the wow. thing. Wow. I'm on there now. There. 
because I was so. like, this this looks amazing. And, you know, the more we know, the more we know. To me, every bit of knowledge gives you kind of a, a framework for what you can do, what the possibilities are. And I feel like if people have done things, then you can do things, right? What, right. And if so many of these people were able to do it in more adverse conditions than we have today, right? I, not that there's no excuse, yeah. but... There's no excuse. You, you know, it's, it's interesting because you, we were talking about Freedman's earlier, and I think in the minds of a lot of people, there was sort of this narrative out there that, well, Freedman's happened and there haven't been any black banks since then. Like no one sort of knew or, or has paid attention or remembered that there were a bunch of them and they were hugely important in their communities for all sorts of reasons. And so, um, you know, I think we're just honored to, to, to call some attention to some of these individuals and, and get their stories out there. And We've tried to write it in a way that you don't have to uh, even really, you know, think a lot about banking just to just to learn more about the history and, and appreciate the work of these folks. Oh, I appreciate this. This is a, a service here and click uh, to access the digital book here. I love it. I clicked on it and I'm right. in beautiful, well done and free. Free. Uh, that's everything. Timothy Todd, thank you so much. We're going to tweet out all of the links. And, all right. Uh, thank you for the work and let's stay in touch. Let's stay in touch. All right. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I yes. I appreciate that. Hey, this is Karen Hunter. You can listen to the Karen Hunter show live every Monday through Friday at 3 p.m. East on Sirius XM Urban View Channel 126 or anytime on the Sirius XM app.